you're about to hear a classic Curbsiders episode covering lower extremity edema featuring guest Dr. Paul Nelson Williams himself. That's right. No expert on this other than an internist because who's more of an expert on edema than an internist? We deal with that every day. Now, we're hard at work producing episodes and planning out the rest of our year. But during this summer break, we're rebooting some of our favorite episodes from the past year or two. Now, if you haven't heard this one, take a listen because it's really good. But if you have heard it, I bet this is so chock full of pearls, you missed something. So listen again for that space learning and to fill in any gaps in your knowledge. And if you're still craving new content, then this is a great time to sign up for our Patreon because now we're offering annual and monthly subscriptions. So take your pick, whichever you like. We have two monthly bonus episodes that come out there every month with me and Paul hanging out, recapping episodes and sharing our picks of the week. Patreon.com slash curbsiders. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul... You know, normally I don't know how to start the show, but tonight especially I don't know how to start the show because Excellent. we're talking about lower extremity edema and you will be kind of leading us through this as the expert because when you and I talked about it, we were like, well, who's an expert in lower extremity edema? We're like, kind of the internist is and we're internists. So, Paul, good luck, buddy. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks, man. I appreciate it. I am anticipating you're going to be doing a lot of heavy lifting, I hope. I think, yeah, we'll we'll tag team this one, but really, I mean, you're the one with the bringing the framework for this one who chased down all the, you know, all the great reading that we were able to do before this. This is going to be a really fun episode. I mean, this is like the definition of high yield, Paul. This is, we see this all the time. And actually, I thought this was like a pretty basic topic, but then like reading through it, it, it gets deep and there's a lot of really interesting stuff to dig into. I mean, I you know, all respect owed to our, our former guests, but I think even without recording this one yet, this is probably our best episode. <laughs> so I'm pretty pretty excited for what's about to happen. This is like uh, th- this is your going to be your equivalent of slam dunking and breaking the backboard. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. For those good. who are not Paul Williams fans before, this is this is the one where I win them over. So uh, get yeah. ready to get charmed. Yeah. Uh, Okay, Paul. So I, I like this character that you play because in real life yep. you will rarely, if ever, say anything that's not extremely humble. And and now you're now you're calling yep. your shot like Babe Ruth. So. It's gonna fall apart pretty quick, I think. <laughs> All right. Before you introduce our wonderful producer and co-host, would you tell the audience what is it that we do on this show? Yeah, I mean, we've already explained that we're not going to do it, but uh, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and generally we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Um, tonight, as you mentioned, we are the experts, and, and we see enough edema that I feel like we can at least talk reasonably well about it, hopefully. Um, and then also we are joined by the amazing, uh, what's your title now, Beth? Your executive producer and correspondent extraordinaire and just all-around social media maven. Are, are all these things accurate and correct? Well, I do want to just say that I am not an expert on edema, so I'm just here to play the fool and, you know, add in youthful references. So you, you guys are fully the experts on this. I like the yeah. implied insult there. That's, that's strong work. <laughs> <laughs> we thank you in advance for the youthful references. Yeah. That's, yes. 
Paul and I are our youth is long in the rearview mirror at this point. <laughs> <laughs> We're just on a freight train headed towards death. So, with that. <laughs> All right, Paul. So let's let's get into. Actually, why don't we do some picks of the week? I I, I really, I, I have a pick of the week, Paul. That I wanted to. Uh, my pick of the week is peppermint tea, Paul, which I'm drinking right now. <laughs> I've never had it before. And a couple movies recently mentioned peppermint tea, and I was like, I think I'm going to try that. But in all seriousness, Paul, I'm trying to think if I read any books lately that I would actually recommend to the audience. Uh, it's I've been in a little bit of a dry spell book wise, so I, I've read some things, but nothing nothing pertinent. And uh, oh, I know what I want to recommend, Paul: Return of the Living Dead. I watched it this oh, weekend, and uh, it's it's a funny movie. It is it is really the some of the biggest performances I've ever seen, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> it's not uh, a subtle film. No, it's not not a subtle film. Really tight, ninety minutes, maybe ninety three minutes. Uh, just really wacky stuff. Ends with a bang. Uh, literally, yeah. Check it out. Return of the Living Dead. I think I believe it was filmed in nineteen eighty five. I was three years old, which is why I've never seen it before. Now, I feel like that. Yeah, that was a staple of my youth. I think so. Um, make some peppermint tea. Watch Returning <laughs> Return of the Living Dead. And and just think about Paul's punk rock youth, as he said to me when I told him I was watching it. <laughs> so, Beth, uh, you want to give a pick of the week? I do have a pick of the week. And usually I wait to recommend a book. Like I want to finish it before I recommend it. So this one I'm actually only halfway through, but I think it's pretty fun. So I'm going to recommend it anyway. It's The Medical Detectives by, and I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce his name, Burton Rueche or Rueche or something French that I can't pronounce. It's a kind of collection of his essays um, where he wrote wrote about medical mysteries in the mid-century era. And it's just a really interesting little time capsule of medicine at that time. It's a kind of like the big hits of internal medicine, like med ed things that we learn about. Like there's a trichinosis case and there's anthrax and there's um, all kinds of other schistosomiasis. That one had a really horrific treatment. Some of this I'm like, oh gosh, like you hear about these historic treatments. They gave him potassium antimony tartrate, which sounds horrible. It apparently made him throw up at some point. And yeah, it makes me very happy that we've progressed a little bit, but recommend it for a little bit of a time capsule. Sounds fantastic. And of course, we're going to want to pick from Paul before we get into the main topic. I don't know, this one might not be so earth shattering. I, you know, now that we're not a monoculture and like everyone has like everyone's interests are so niche, I don't know if everyone's aware of Royal Blood or not as a band. And this might be a little bit of a late recommendation, but Royal Blood, they're an English group. It's a twosome. It's a bass player and a drummer out of England. And the, the bass player uses like effects pedals and loops and studio chicanery to sort of cause this wall of sound. They're great. They put out a couple of good albums, but their most recent one, Typhoons, came out um, earlier this year. And they, they are mostly straight ahead rock, but this most recent album actually has is a little bit dancier, which I which I'm kind of liking. The guy has perfect pitch. The the instrumentation is fantastic. The drummer is a human metronome. And then they you throw in some disco and some falsetto. And I'm actually fairly happy. So if that sounds vaguely appealing to you, I would recommend the Royal Blood album Typhoons, uh, which came out, I want to say, in March or April, I think, of this year. Paul, between you and Elena, I'm building up a list of things that I have to check out on on Spotify be- so that I can become much cooler in my musical tastes. Right. Yeah, I, I, but this one, I, I actually, this one, I think I, think I would like. I think you would like this one. Yeah, and, and their first album for sure. But I, I think if, yeah, I think you'd probably enjoy all their stuff actually, from as much as I know of your tastes. All right. So with that, Beth, will you take to take us to a case from Cashlack Memorial, which almost certainly has a clever name? 
Yes. And this is one of my recent favorites, I have to say. <laughs> Lynn Fadima. Lynn Fadima. Great uh, last Ms. name. Ms. Fadima, yes, is a 50-year-old female with a past medical history of type 2 diabetes complicated by peripheral neuropathy, chronic low back pain, hypertension, and obesity. And she's here in your clinic to establish care. Her primary concern is lower extremity swelling. It's been ongoing for years, but it seems like it's worse now. Um, she's reporting that she can't really wear the shoes she likes anymore. She, you know, she can't wear pretty shoes because of this. Um, her legs are feeling tight and uncomfortable, and she wants to know what you think is going on with her legs. So, Dr. Paul Williams, expert guest, please take us through. What's the pathophysiology here? Well, th thank you for that, Beth. And I, I guess it depends. It, like everything in medicine is the short answer. So, I But I think thinking about what could be going wrong is probably a helpful way to actually figure out how we can actually help poor Ms. Fadima, maybe one of the names I'm most ashamed of writing um, in my history with <laughs> curbsiders. But I, I think a good way to think about things that actually cause edema. So when you when you think about edema in general, basically your body's waging a war. There, there's hydrostatic pressure. So everything's trying to force stuff out of the vessels. And then you have oncotic pressure trying to sort of suck everything back in. And there's this delicate balance there. And happily for homeostasis, most of the time things are where they belong. And the fluid is in the vessels and not just kind of floating around the interstitium where it does not belong. And that's when you have excess flow in the interstitium, that is by and large edema, and, and we'll sort of get into the very specific causes of it. So anytime I'm looking at someone with edema, there's something that has caused imbalance, and I think it's helpful to probably break it up mechanistically what we think is happening here. So is there an increase in the hydrostatic pressure? And usually I think about that in terms of is there venous hypertension? So is there something that's causing the pressures within the vessel to be higher? And lots and lots and lots of stuff can do that. Most of the stuff that you think of right out the gate, but you know, classically right-sided heart failure, I think you can see that with, or even venous insufficiency, but something that's causing the pressure in the veins to be higher than it should be. And then it pushes out the fluid and the fluid just doesn't make its way back in. I think another mechanism to think about is endoluminal obstruction, which is another way that you can actually cause venous hypertension. So really the two are related. So if you have something blocking the lumen of the vessel, impeding venous return, and whether that thing is a clot or extrinsic compression, um, like a popliteal cyst or a tumor or even pregnancy, something's keeping that the venous return from happening the way that it's supposed to. So again, this this results um, in venous hypertension. So you're just seeing the, the fluids not going where they want to be. And then I think lastly, the things, you know, the other side of this is the oncotic pressure component. And I again, I think we all know this stuff, but we may not think about it. When we see someone with lower extremity edema, we may just kind of knee jerk start for osum, I'd say, um, which we'll talk to. But things that would cause decreased oncotic pressure are, are things that cause your lower protein state. So nephrotic syndrome, classically, someone who has protein energy malnutrition, certainly you can see decreased oncotic pressure because of lower albumin, liver failure because of the decreased synthesis. So all those things can lead to a lower oncotic pressure. So as opposed to the increased hydrostatic pressure or the fluid is being pushed out, you just don't have the stuff that you need in the vessel to suck the fluid back in. So that's my very basic way of thinking about it. And then I think probably... A third thing as I'm thinking about it is just leaky capillaries. And I, I probably the prototypic example would be burns can do that and just cause inflammation. But anything that would cause inflammation at a local site, whether it be infection, um, would cause a little bit of vasodilation. Things become a little bit more permeable. I think we've all seen, I'm talking too much now, but we've all seen dependent edema in the summertime. The patient comes in, it's August, it's hot outside. And they're like, my legs are swelling up. And I think that's in part because you're seeing increased vasodilation um, from the warmer weather, things are a little bit leakier. And as a result, you, you end up with edema. So that's my basic breakdown of how I start to think about things mechanistically. This episode is brought to you by Pathway. Pathway is a new clinical decision support tool that I've talked about on the show before. It's an app that is free to download and free to use to help you make evidence-based decisions quickly and efficiently. 
I've used Pathway, and one thing that I really like about it is that the summaries are very concise and easy to read through. They even have concise summaries of landmark articles in medicine. So in internal medicine, you know, we're all about the landmark articles. On Pathway, you can bring it up. Sometimes they have little graphs and figures in there, and they really give you a concise summary of the article to refresh your memory, make you look smart, make you sound smart, and give your patient good care because it's evidence-based medicine. Their topic summaries concisely simplify a lot of the guidelines that are out there. We know there's a million guidelines that we have to know. Pathway does that for you. They summarize it, and you can use it right at the point of care. As I said, this is updated daily with the latest medical research and guidelines, and they also send out weekly emails that are short and concise. Again, helping keep you up to date. This is a great service, so take advantage of it. And take advantage of their great app by downloading it today to improve your clinical decision-making and your patient care. Visit pathway.md. That's pathway.md. As I said, I've used this tool, and I think you should use it too. So visit pathway.md. High pressures, like high hydrostatic pressures um, from various reasons or low oncotic pressures or this leaky capillaries. I do think there's like take cirrhosis. I think they have a little bit of both going on. For sure. So I I think it's they're not going to always cleanly fit into one bucket. And that was one of the big take homes was that uh, from some of these review articles are like often patients have more than one reason to have edema. Right. Yeah, exactly. And there's the other component is interstitial pressure, right? Like, so the thing that's kind of also helping to keep fluid in the vessels, but you just typically don't see changes in that so much. So maybe with inflammation, you might see it. And I think um, we can talk about the Cardi B tweet, which I love. So, you know, decreased cabin pressure could also indirectly cause decreased interstitial pressure. So, but that's not one that we think of as much from a, a mechanistic standpoint. So, so this Cardi B tweet, Paul, you're tell you, you kind of glossed over it, but basically she's tweeting out a picture of her swollen feet and ankles after a plane flight. And how exactly does the physiology work there? Uh, yeah, no, thanks so much for asking. It's, I had to actually um, redact some portions of the tweet because this is a family program after all. But, <laughs> but but Cardi B says, look how swollen my feet get every time I take flights. My stomach even gets more puffy. And, and then she goes on to say why she skipped the show. And then she was angry that some people accused her. Of it. So anyway, yeah, you don't have to look into it. And I, I but I, I love this as an example and the fact that she includes it because it, it has a lot of the underlying pathophysiology that might cause edema. So think about all the things that you need to actually allow venous return to happen. So part of that is uh, the activity of your muscles, right? Like the venous is a passive system. Like all you've got are valves in place. So you need the muscles contracting to actually kind of work the, the venous circulation back where it belongs. And when you're on those long flights, your calf muscles aren't working. You just, you don't, you don't get that. Um, so as you're sitting for long periods of time, you're not, you're not contracting the muscles. And as a result, you have venous stasis. So that's one. Two is just Cardi B probably has a much nicer airplane seat than you or I are used to, but I would still, you're sitting and you actually have extrinsic compression of the venous return, right? Like you're sitting there at the edge of the seats, pushing into the back of your legs, you're impeding venous return that way. You have extrinsic compression, you're causing venous hypertension. Reason number two, why poor Cardi B is experiencing edema. And then reason number three, and I, I think this is true. I've not been able to find papers to back me up on this, but you're in the air, you have lower cabin pressure. I think everyone's feet get a little bit swollen. Like I feel like I know even I get kind of achy just sort of being up there, even if I'm trying to make a conscious effort to sort of contract and walk around and it's still things just kind of hurt. And I think that's because the cabin pressure is lower when you're actually um, at altitude. And as a result, this is one of the rare instances where like it's almost a, your interstitial pressure is a little bit less. And so as a result, things are a little bit leakier um, and you get a little bit of puffiness that way. So I think she has three good pathophysiologic reasons to have edema. Um, just because she's flying around. So it's a pity Cardi B. I hope that she feels better, but I, I appreciate her tweet because it helped make a couple <laughs> of teaching points. 
I I love it, Paul. This this is this is the kind of thing you get in a Paul Williams. Uh, if you if you hear a Paul Williams talk, he will include some really well crafted slides uh, with clever teaching points like that. So, Paul, this is so Miss Fadima. In the case we gave you that she has lower extremity swelling, and she you know we want to get her back in some nice nice shoes. That was part of the ask here. So. Um, right off the bat with her case, is there anything else that you want to ask her about? Like, what do we know so far that, that you, that would be keying you in on what the diagnosis might be here? Yeah, no, I think, and we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. I think building your, your diagnostic scheme is a little bit tricky with edema, but I, I think laterality helps. And I think chronicity helps too. And, and what this patient's giving us is a story of chronic edema and chronic bilateral edema specifically. And I think that, unfortunately, that gives us the broadest possible differential. It'd be, a, yeah. a, for better or for worse, if she came in with a, a hot red angry leg, which we'll talk about later on, that would that would probably narrow things down a lot. But but it still gives us a differential to work with. You know, in terms of who this patient is, she's over the age of 50. And right away, that for me, that makes me think more about chronic venous insufficiency because that is just a disease that becomes more prevalent the older that you get. And so you you asked. So actually, let me let me flip it to you, Matt. So when you because I feel like we see this a lot. So when you see someone that you suspect might have chronic lower extremity edema, like what kind of questions are you asking them, and how how are you differentiating that from the other sort of um, more actionable causes? Well, like you, I definitely acute versus chronic is the first step because if it's acute, you really have to go down the DVT pathway, which we can talk about later. But for for chronic edema, I do one of the simple questions is like just asking them, does it get better? overnight, you know, when they tend to be recumbent, as long as they're not sleeping in a recliner, when it, when they're recumbent, if it's better in the morning, you know, that's much less worrisome. That would make me think this is like dependent edema or something related to venous insufficiency uh, versus if it doesn't, um, then something like a lymphedema that doesn't change throughout the day. So I, I find that helpful. And then whether or not it's painful because the, you know, certain conditions are painful and certain conditions are not. So those are, are useful things to know. Uh, of course, as an internist, someone who almost became a geriatrician, I love blaming medications for things. So I also will commonly look at the medications. She has hypertension. So you know we're going to talk about calcium channel blockers. And she's got chronic back pain and neuropathy. So you know we're going to want to know uh, if she's on gabapentinoids, Paul. And uh, those are those are some of the things. And then like just kind of trying to think, like, do I think she has cardiopulmonary disease or do I think she has cirrhosis? Those would be some of the big ones. In if she's still having menstruation, you could ask about that as well. What am I missing? What other what other things are you going to ask about? No, you're you're doing great. You know, and I, I think I think that the organ systems that we think about primarily when we worry about scary causes of edema are cardiac, um, nephrogenic, and hepatic. Like I think those are kind of the yeah. three biggies, and we can we can talk about the workup. But I think the cardiac's the one that you can't miss. So the, your usual, you can't miss any of them, <laughs> or at least you shouldn't. But like, you know, so you ask about your, your symptoms of heart failure. Is the patient having orthopnea? Are they having proxismal nocturnal dyspnea? Like, it's do they have progressive dyspnea on exertion? All those things. Like, I think you have to ask those questions. Even if you don't have high suspicion, it would be embarrassing to miss someone who has, yeah. <laughs> who has yeah. no one's at heart failure. And that's the patient where you might get might get the echo. You know, this is a patient we mentioned in her, in her medical history that she has a history of obesity. And that can, in and of itself, predispose you to chronic venous insufficiency. You can have actually external compression just from abdominal panis sometimes. But then also, you think about other comorbidities. This is someone who has uh, risk for diastolic dysfunction and possible HFPEF. This is someone who may even potentially have risk for perhaps undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea. So other historical things that you might ask about are, you know, you might do your stop bang. So, you know, are you snoring? Do you have daytime somnolence? Would all be reasonable questions to ask because... It's a, it's actually a pretty common cause of 
lower extremity edema is undertreated or undiagnosed OSA. And then I think other stuff, you know, in terms of historical context, because I'm not sure we're going to talk about this elsewhere, like this is a patient who has a background of diabetes, and we don't know what medications she's on, but some of them might contribute. But if you worry about something like nephrotic syndrome, like you could ask about, and I'm I'm sure this has a sensitivity of like 50%, but you could ask about (laughs) frothy or foamy urine. But more importantly, because this patient has a background diabetes, like you can't miss someone who has overproteinuria um, and nephrotic syndrome and is, is edematous because of that. And let's just remind the audience that our great friend, Kidney Boy, Dr. Joel Toff, told us that the way he asked about foamy urine is it doesn't go down on one flush, which I thought was hilarious, <laughs> hilarious because, you know, like there's bubbles when people urinate, there's there's some bubbles in the water. But he's like, it's so foamy that sometimes it doesn't all go down in one flush, which is uh, hopefully something I will never experience personally, Paul. It, so I, th- I think if that's- If you a- would, I hope that you would do us and our listeners a favor and report back. Like I just, I think you, you <laughs> owe it to our tweet audience. It, Paul. If yeah. it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Can you make a, t- a TikTok video of the flush? That's, that's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. With like a Doja Cat song in the background. That's yeah, perfect. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So, so we talked about doesn't improve overnight. Is it painful? Drugs? systemic diseases like heart, liver, kidney. We talked about sleep apnea, pulmonary hypertension. We talked about potentially tying it to menstruation. And then the one thing I guess we missed was like history of malignancy or trauma, especially I would think of that if this was a unilateral, but you know, you could think of that uh, still because you can get a bilateral compression if they have an abdominal pelvic malignancy. For sure. Or take, for instance, someone who has, um, and again, again, you can, you can, I'm always good at, at spitballing worst case scenarios, but if someone has an IVC filter that is clotted off, uh, certainly yeah. like that, that's, you could get bilateral edema from that. So it's, you can't roll out DVT just because it's bilateral for sure. But I, I just, for now we're, we're sort of in zebra land. I think the one statistic that I, I think is useful is that 30% of the adult population has a diagnosis of venous insufficiency. 1% has heart failure. So just remember common things being common. Like it's one of the reasons to not do the shotgun everyone gets an echocardiogram and a 24-hour urine protein is because you can get lower extremity edema because about a third of the population does just because of venous insufficiency. Just So again, I, I think if there's any takeaway point from the entire episode, it's going to be sort of be thoughtful and deliberate about how you're working this up and how you're treating it. So it's in terms of the workup, I, I think there's maybe a bare minimum you could do based on patient background. I think my workup would probably be different if this was a... Um, a 30-year-old patient with minimal past medical history, as opposed to uh, Ms. Fadima here, who has a lot of things that could pretend a, a worse prognosis. So for Ms. Fadima, you know, I think you could make, uh, so from an examination standpoint, you would you would look for your heart failure symptoms. So you, yeah, I would hope that you would do a good JVD examination. I hope that you would look for the laterally displaced PMI and, and so forth and so on. Um, I, you know, you're, you're going to look at the legs. That's always a great place to start. I think there's a lot of hay made about petting versus non-petting edema, or at least we report it. So maybe actually, so since I'm talking probably a little bit over much, Matt, so what's, how do you conceptually, what's the difference and how does that help us? Is that something that you worry too much about? Yeah, I, I think I, I put a little bit of stock in it. Uh, certainly some conditions are non-pitting, uh, you know, and some of those are like lymphedema versus chronic venous insufficiency or heart failure. I think chronic venous insufficiency and heart failure are more likely to have some pitting components to them. Lymphedema can have pitting early on, but once it's more sort of fully out there, lymphedema and a, another condition that looks similar to it, lipedema, is uh, neither one of those is pitting once they're kind of fully formed. So 
I think it's useful in that setting. The thyroid, the changes that go along with thyroid disorder are fortunately rare for the patient. So I'm not sure that I've confidently seen that uh, in my career. <laughs> but You've not seen pretribial myxedema? Yeah. Uh, one, one thing that I would like just comment on um, with the exam, I've just noticed like if you take care of geriatric patients and you're feeling for edema, if you just gently press like enough that you blanch your thumbnail... And, and hold for five seconds. It's not painful for the patient uh, in most cases, and you can still check for pitting. But when I see patient people just go in there and they just mash as hard as they can on the shins, and uh, some of these patients, it's it can be painful. It's or painful, it can, yes. Or they're on blood thinners and they're going to get bruising from it. So please be kind to your patient when you're testing for edema. But I would pay attention to pitting edema over the shins. And then I would also check on the tops of the feet and then, uh, Paul, you'll tell us a little bit about uh, stemmer sign as well, you know, if we're thinking about lymphedema as a cause, because that can help differentiate between like a chronic venous insufficiency and something like lymphedema. But uh, that's how I check for edema. Probably something I should have mentioned up top is another cause of, of edema, as you mentioned, is that you don't have the lymphatic return in lymphedema. There's some reason for it most of the time. You can have idiopathic lymphedema, and there's classifications for that, but more often than not, there's a secondary cause that is something is impeding lymphatic return. And that can be radiation, or it can be extrinsic compression, or it can be tumor, or it can be surgical disruption. There's lots and lots of stuff that can do it. And lymphedema behaves a little bit differently, in part because there are chronic changes over time that you don't see with just the venous hypertension edema. So like you, lymphedema, you actually leak proteins as well. And as a result, there's sort of chronic inflammation and underlying fibrosis. And as a result, the skin and the tissue underneath becomes thicker, as opposed to just sort of swollen with fluid, which is one of the ways that you can actually differentiate. So you can use that to your advantage to figure out what's happening. And lymphedema, and maybe we can even talk a little bit about management after this, but lymphedema, you can assess for it by looking for something called stemmer sign, which is a fun little trick where basically you just try to pinch the skin at the base of the toes. If you can grab it, if you can actually pinch and pull up, then you're probably dealing with a good old-fashioned bread and butter edema as opposed to lymphedema where you can't actually get a hold of the skin to pull it up because you can't tent it because the skin itself is sort of fibrotic and thickened from these chronic changes over time. And that that's called stemmer sign. So impress your million-year-old attendings by doing that on the next toe that you see and they'll, they'll love you forever. The rest of the examination, not the rest, but I think a lot of the examination basically has to do with figuring out what might actually be causing the underlying edema. What If it's not dependent on edema, if it's dependent on edema just sort of being the edema that happens if you let your legs hang down for a long two period of time, or if it's not chronic venous insufficiency, what else could it be? And I think that's, that's where the physical examination is most helpful. I think poking and prodding at the legs other than trying to differentiate between lymphedema and chronic venous insufficiency may not be super duper helpful. But I think most of the exams should be focused on underlying etiology is kind of how I think about it. It's, it's you know, it, as you develop your, your differential, it, that should define your examination. Yeah. We should not be doing the same exam on every single patient. But I just want to define for our listeners also, or, or at least talk about briefly, is the lipedema, mm -hmm. which is not a term that I had known much about or thought much about. And I think that we've all seen this. And this is basically pathologic accumulation of adipose tissue in, in the lower extremities. And you can sometimes the upper extremities, too. What's characteristic about this is the feet are spared. So you see relatively relatively skinny feet, but then you see a lot of adiposity um, coming up both the extremities. I, I think that I've seen a ton of this and just didn't have the language to describe it. And this is a fairly good mimic of, of edema, and it's not. It's actually adipose tissue. So I think just being aware that this exists and kind of being mindful of it and sort of knowing your terms is probably helpful when you're examining the patient. And I think, truth be told, these patients will not be presenting with a complaint of swelling of the lower extremities. Like, this is not going to be a change in anything for them. But I, I think it's just something to be mindful of as you're doing your physical examination. Let's talk about the workup here. So let me give you a little bit more of the history that we get for Ms. Fadima. So she reports that her legs have been like this for years. 
She doesn't have symptoms of heart failure. She doesn't snore. She's somewhat ambivalent about daytime somnolence, which, you know, I think that's pretty common when you're suspecting sleep apnea and the patient isn't really giving you anything, but you still want to suspect it just because it's so common. <laughs> but you're kind of sleepy, aren't you? I mean, yeah, as you're yeah. nodding aggressively You're asking, asking leading questions. <laughs> um, so she says, yeah, maybe my legs improve with elevation. Um, she does notice that they're worse at the end of the day. And uh, developing fur- delving further into the history, Paul, it's getting interesting. She takes metformin, pioglitazone for her diabetes. The latter was maybe supposed to help her liver, Paul. Amlodipine, 10 milligrams for her high blood pressure. Gabapentin, 300 milligrams, three times a day for her neuropathy. Probably for her chronic back pain too, right, Paul? I'm sure, yeah. Tried and, and true. And naproxen, 500 milligrams twice a day for her low back pain. She does note that she sometimes takes an extra dose when it really bothers her. Now, Paul, I'm going to ask you a question, which <laughs> this is the, this is the thing where I say something that's totally wrong and you correct me. So, Paul, this is my favorite rhetorical device. Great. So, Lay on me. so, Paul, none of these medications are a problem for her edema. Am I am I correct? Actually, unfortunately, Matt, um, that is incorrect. And in fact, her medication list is just an absolute nightmare if you're trying to tease out what a potential cause of lower extremity edema might be. So whoever wrote this case is an absolute monster. Um, <laughs> that was you, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> she also just finished a dose of steroids for a cold two weeks ago. <laughs> oh, Perfect. yes. I forgot about that. <laughs> right. Because Paul's also her chemotherapy. Prim- <laughs> that, yeah. I forgot about that. That's Paul. Paul, that's your standard Z-Pack and uh, high dose steroids for a cold, common cold? Yeah. Yeah, Z-Pack and a, a prednisone taper. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. Better safe than sorry, especially in your diabetic <laughs> patients. You really want to make sure you load them up with steroids to calm down that inflammation. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so it's her medication list. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that it's it, it. there's a lot of potential culprits when we're talking about someone who has lower extremity edema. So the, the, the glitazones, like we don't see too, too much. But you know, I, I think there is some some people think they might be helpful for the metabolic-associated fatty liver disease. So not uncommon. But unfortunately, they, they, they do cause or can cause fluid retention. So possibly a causative etiology. The, let's talk about the naproxen next. All the NSAIDs can, again, cause you to hang on to excess fluid. So certainly, possibly, we could blame them. Also, maybe, who knows, let's be mean, just, you know, they're giving her renal failure. Why not? I think the amlodipine is the one that I think we all feel comfortable. Like, I, like if you asked any resident about what blood pressure medication might cause arsheme edema, like, they all know amlodipine. And it, it does tend to be dose-dependent. It does tend to be worse in, in older patients than younger patients. So... For someone, you know, you can get away with the lower doses, but it, as you crank up the doses, you're more likely to have this lower extremity edema. Do you remember how that works, Matt? Not to put you on the spot. Yeah, I do. I do. So it is a vasodilator. And so you're you're basically causing almost like causing increased pressure in the capillaries. So more fluid leaks out. That's my understanding of it. So if the afferent is is dilated, puts more fluid into the capillaries and it leaks out. So one of the mechanisms that I believe the great Tony Brew was recommending in his tutorial is that if you give something that dilates the efferent arterial, then you can kind of keep the pressure lower in the capillaries and maybe mitigate this problem. So that would be something like an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker. And uh, those could potentially be paired with these more so than what often happens, Paul, is giving diuretics for, for this condition. You're so smart, Matt. That was magnificent. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 precapillary arterial or dilation, but it doesn't actually do anything to the venule. So exactly right. So you have this increased flow. The veins don't the veins don't have the capacity to kind of suck it back up, and as a result, you have this you have the edema. Exactly right. And this is not 
this is not a sodium problem. Like it's not even really a volume problem. So things like diuretics are not going to really fix it at all. So mechanistically, they just don't make sense. And I think anecdotally, in my own experience, I've seen people try this and I've not seen it work too. So the medication that, that seems to make a difference are your ACEs or your ARBs because they also cause post-capillary dilation. And as a result, you sort of mitigate the problem to some extent is my understanding of things. So with with the rest of her meds here, I mean, it's going to be hard, right? Because she she has chronic pain from two different sources. She has neuropathy. She has chronic back pain. And uh, what about the gabapentin? Uh, we, we mentioned the NSAIDs. So NSAIDs, and I believe it's actually a through a sodium retention, the NSAIDs can cause can cause some edema. But what mm-hmm. about the gabapentinoids? And like, are those a problem? This is not something that I was commonly taught, but recently, I think we saw this on Twitter, a bunch of people were talking about this. And of course, all the review articles mention it as well. Yeah. And I, I've seen this in actually clinical practice I, slightly before it actually... Um Slightly before the Twitter buzz and, and far before this episode. But yeah, I've, I've, I've seen the gabapentinoids, unfortunately, also can cause large extremity edema. Again, they are dose dependent. And again, your older patients are going to be more prone to that side effect than your younger patients. So it's it's just something to be aware of. I In my own practice at Cash, like North Northeast, I fixed someone's edema just by stopping their pregabalin. Like they've been on pregabalin for chronic pain, probably not entirely appropriately, happily not prescribed by me. But I was like, please stop taking that. And her edema got better. And because it wasn't treating her pain anyway, that was <laughs> that was kind of a moot point. So just, yeah, I think it, it's an important one to be mindful of because like you, I was not, I don't think taught that uh, in my trainings. And I think it's, it's probably more common than we recognize. So Paul, uh, we've been talking about the medications here and I just wanted to throw you a little bit of a curveball in the history. So we're kind of gl- leaning in, okay, maybe this is medication induced right now, but let's say Ms. Fedema, what if she had like bilateral circumferential erythema and and edema of the lower extremities, most certainly, and again, I'm going to use this device, which I find very helpful. Um, (laughs) Almost certainly, this is bilateral cellulitis, which I believe is very common. Is that true? Yeah, no, it's it's all of that other than your description was incorrect. So (laughs) strong word, helpful for helpful for the listeners. Yeah, no, I I think I think we've made this point a, a bunch of times on the show, but you with chronic venous insufficiency, there it's a spectrum, right? So you can have someone who comes in with swelling of the legs that's cyclic and maybe worse in the summertime and it bothers them. And you try to talk them to compression stockings, which are awful, but we'll get into it. And that's really the worst of it. But then you also have the the more se- severe end of the spectrum where you have chronic venous stasis changes. You can see changes in the skin itself. You can you can have um, stasis dermatitis where the, the legs become kind of red and and shiny and kind of hot and even look a little bit like they're either infected or like a DVT, but it's bilateral and kind of there all the time. And, and certainly, I think we've all seen super infection of that because you're also prone to ulceration. I think if you're not careful and if someone who, say, for instance, has a background of diabetes neuropathy who maybe starts with a foot infection that then ascends, like there's lots of ways this can go south, but typically not bilaterally. It's not impossible, but it's also not the most likely thing. So I think the two points to be made here is bilateral cellulitis is very uncommon. And then what is unfortunately common is to have bilateral uh, skin changes that just look sort of chronically inflamed and, and red and angry. And I'm not sure, Matt, do you have any any tips or tricks for differentiating between an infected leg and sort of a chronic venous stasis changes? Like how how do you approach that? Because I feel like we see this all the time where the patients, maybe they think yeah. their leg looks worse, but it's hard to tell. It It is hard to tell. I think if it's very symmetric, bilateral, especially if it's non-tender, but it's just warm and red and, and, and uh, they have this chronic swelling, then I'm not, you know, if it's not tender and, and it's just warm, red, swollen, and it's chronic, I'm much less concerned and I'm more going to try to decongest them 
you know, use some compression therapy, maybe some topical steroid for inflammation that's going on. These are things that I would anecdotally do that I, I believe do work and um, just kind of counsel them. We're going to get into the treatment in a, in a minute here, but that's that's how I would approach it. If you look at the medial malleolus area, that patients tend to form ulcers or tend to have like pigmentation changes there. You know, that's a, that's an area where Again, I would think that makes me think venous insufficiency. If I see hyperpigmentation or ulceration in the medial malleolus, that's really keying me in on that as the diagnosis. We should probably get into a little bit of like what might be the treatment be for her right away. I think you could tell her the treatment for that, and then we can talk about maybe if this was a chronic venous insufficiency or if this was a lymphedema, how it might be different. So, what what would you do for her? For her, I mean, I, I would, <laughs> for her, I would stop the medications that I could is probably the first thing that would look like. So if I can, I would probably try to decrease her dose of amlodipine because I just feel like we see that one so often as a culprit medication. And it's worth noting, and I think this is even in Tony's uh, t- tutorial as well, like it can augment the changes that you see that are seasonal. So in the warmer weather, you might actually see even more edema if someone has, is on a calcium channel blocker. So it's, it may just make pre-existing stuff worse. So I think it's worth probably scaling back that and trying a different agent or an additional agent if you can. And stop the NSAIDs, go to topical, because as I think we're finding out, they're just better for everything anyway. And if you can get away from the gabapentin, great, but you may not be able to, and that's okay. The other thing, you'd mentioned compression. And, you know, it's it's probably worth mentioning that even if she was having recurrent infections from her chronic venous stasis, actually, uh, the recent landmark trial that showed compression is probably our best bet in terms of preventing that from happening. But then it's also the thing that's going to help the most in terms of relieving symptoms. So I, I would advise poor Ms. Fedema to elevate as much as possible. I would probably order her compression stockings. These are usually, the way that you order these, um, they have different uh, levels of pressure depending on what condition you're trying to treat. So for venous insufficiency, you want 30 to 40 millimeters of mercury at the ankle. And then the other caveat is if you think there's arterial insufficiency, so if you're worried for any of your arterial disease, don't go compressing. That's a bad idea. Yeah. Um, but for venous insufficiency, you want the 30 to 40 um, at a level that the patient will will tolerate. Um, yeah. And then I, we talked before, I, I wouldn't personally not start a diuretic for, these, for this patient, at least not empirically, in the absence of any kind of volume overload from heart disease or renal failure or anything like that, because I just don't think mechanistically doesn't make sense. Um, there's no evidence for it. And I think you just increase the risk of things like electrolyte abnormalities without any real benefit. Yeah. I, I think part of the other counseling, weight loss would help. In many cases, Great. it could it yep. could help with the edema. Um, as we mentioned, the calf is the peripheral heart of the leg. So the muscle pump from exercise can help even if they're just doing, you know, exercises in, uh, if, even if they're wheelchair bound doing exercises, you know, or not very mobile, they could try some of these exercises. So those are some of the things. And then just telling them it's probably going to be worse when it's hot out. If you eat a giant sodium load, you know, it, it might worsen your edema, just kind of giving some of that expectation counseling. And then Paul, as always telling them, like, I don't think this is cancer. I don't think you're going to die from this. You know, that's often useful. That's a lot of the times that's what patients want to hear uh, when they have this. But what workup might you do? Let's say we stop the meds, but the edema is still there, Paul. And now you're thinking you're not as sure of the diagnosis. Maybe this could be chronic venous insufficiency. Are there labs or imaging studies that that you might get for her um, at this, maybe not at the first visit because we thought we had such a slam dunk reason, but, uh, and she wasn't giving us any worrisome symptoms. What, What labs might you do or imaging? Yeah, I, I will say I'm not going to be able to give you a straightforward algorithm. And obviously, you have to look at the patient in front of you. And I, I think we alluded to this earlier. Because Ms. Fedema is a little bit older and, and multimorbid, I would probably be a little bit more aggressive and a little bit earlier with my workup than I would with somebody else. So I, I think 
for her, given the fact that she has her underlying diabetes, I probably would check a protein creatinine ratio in her urine and make sure that she's not spilling and not it's not nephrotic syndrome, even though we're not seeing the periorbital edema and see also another excellent uh, tutorial by Tony Brew. I would check a TSH just because one of these days, maybe it'll actually help me make the diagnosis of lower extremity edema, but it's because you're supposed to, but I don't think it's terribly high yield. I think higher yield is probably a comprehensive metabolic panel is probably my go-to. And this is personal practice. This is not um, any guideline driven stuff, by the way, but I, I feel like that would help give you an albumin. So if their albumin comes back and I have patients like this, if it comes back at you know 1.3 and say they're a post-bariatric surgery patient, that points you down a different pathway. It would also give you a sense of their um, renal function as well, because it's going to give you either being on the creatinine uh, and just make sure that you're not missing renal diseases and etiology for an, a cause of volume overload. I also think for her, depending on what the stop bang is like, if you have high suspicion for sleep apnea, um, obviously polysomnography should be part of the workup. And then I, again, it, I would probably in this particular patient who is so well set up for diastolic dysfunction, it would not take much for me to get the TTE, but probably not the first thing I would order. I think I'd do my and initial it, workup, see what there is to see. What do you think about a BNP? Uh, like a, Because I, I saw a BNP listed as uh, BN for November, not BMP. Yeah. Is that something that you routinely order? I, you know, I, I know now, I, I guess if it's someone has undiagnosed heart failure, there is some prognostic value to it. You know, you got to be more worried about patients with a high BNP. I'm not hinging the entire diagnosis on that, but- Sometimes I think it can be helpful. I, I'm not sure what you feel about that, Paul. And this is now our like non-expert opinion, but for me, I it's almost like ordering an outpatient troponin for me. Like I just I just tend not to you do it because do I it. yeah I, it's I'm not sure it's yeah. it's all that helpful. Um, okay, and then Paul, how often are you ordering like uh, pelvic imaging? You know, concern like if someone if you do this whole workup and then you're still not convinced that it it just doesn't seem like chronic venous insufficiency. It's not lymphedema. You know, are you ever doing the CT abdomen pelvis or like if you think ovarian cancer, you're you're looking for like transvaginal ultrasound. Is that something that you're doing? Yeah, I've done. I, and I'd, I'd be curious to hear your answer, too. I've done pelvic imaging where it just it just doesn't smell right. And then if you especially certainly if you have a patient with a prior history of malignancy, uh, you know, I, I think it's specific into something about it. Someone who maybe has a history of prostate cancer. Um, would get pelvic imaging for me too sweet. But it's there are certain patients and I think age is probably the biggest thing. You know, it's unusual for. Um, someone in their 70s or, or even 60s to, to suddenly develop lower extremity edema that you just don't have a good explanation for. Like, that's just not how this chronic venous insufficiency right. behaves. So I, I think you have to, again, look at the patient in front of you. But if you're worried about underlying malignancy and they have the right background gestalt for it, I, I would certainly consider it if the workup was initially negative. What if we say, okay, we, we've done the workup, we've done the labs, her echo looks okay. We don't really think she, maybe she has grade one diastolic dysfunction, but she doesn't have cardiopulmonary like us, symptoms. Yeah. We we don't think this is hefpef, and uh, we, we we let's say we even got abdominal imaging, and she doesn't have like a lymphadenopathy Oof. that's bulky or uh, you know a gigantic uh, uterus with fib um, fibroids or something that's like compressing her her venous return. So Paul, we've done all those things, and now Paul, I know you know we're going to talk about some horse chestnut seed extract. So tell me exactly. <laughs> you know we're going to talk about some horse chestnut seed Paul, extract. Paul, this is uh, when I read this, I was like, I, this was probably what I was most excited to talk about on this episode because I just wanted to find out if you've ever actually done this or if you were aware of this, like prior to uh, you know developing this uh, lower extremity talk that you've been giving. Matt, it's so rare that I get the chance to do this to you, and, and perhaps we can even cut this out. But I, I'm gonna leave it up to you. This came up at ACP, buddy. Like this Did is it? um, this is one of those uh, like uh, I like don't top remember 10 at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it's, I think this was a recap. I, I don't want to screw up which of our excellent guest correspondents did it, but this actually came up in a recap. I almost of... have perfect recall of the show, Paul. You know, like I, know, I well, almost did. every episode 17 <laughs> times, but yeah, no, I, I, I'm 90% sure we talked about this before. So to answer your question, yes, I've heard of it. I have not had um, the wherewithal to actually order it. How so, about you? I, no, I, as I said, I, I, you know, last, last week when I was re- doing some pre-reading for this, that that's the first time that I remember coming across it, but it is really recommended only for short-term use, Paul. And it's, it, there's a lot of practical things that I think are the reason why, but it's, it's a 300 milligrams twice a day dose, which gives you 50 milligrams of Eschen, whatever that is, Paul. And I was looking up, apparently they think for, and this is for chronic venous insufficiency. That's what, that's what we're talking about using it for. And you can give it in the short term, maybe while you're starting to put into place some of these lifestyle things, some of the compression, just to give you like a little bit of a boost. It, that's, that's how it seems like it'd be used, Paul. And it, it inhibits the activity of elastase and hyaluronidase. And both of those are thought to somehow play a role in venous insufficiency. The downside is it it's an inhibitor of the SIP system, which means that it's going to wreak havoc with, potentially wreak havoc with other medications that the patient may be on. But what is more concerning is that it can have additive effects to anticoagulants and antiplatelets, Paul. <laughs> Great. So, you know, for a lot of our patients in internal medicine, they're older, they're on antiplatelets, they're on anticoagulants. I'm not going to be throwing a lot of horse chestnut seed extract at them. But Paul, the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, they have actually a really great integrative medicine where they talk about all the different herbs and medicinal supplements that are not, you know, traditional Western medicine. And looking this up, apparently there's been some case reports of people taking horse chestnut seed. And I'm not, I don't think this was the extract. I think they were maybe just eating the actual seeds because there's at least one case report of someone who had a bezoar from this. Oh, nice. Uh, and another person had their kidney rupture. Oh, and then and then there was one case report of pericarditis. But, you know, I feel like probably lots of people are like trying this for their edema. We're not even hearing about it. I and mean, I, there's listen. no like epidemic of pericarditis from horse chestnut seed extract. So if or I stopped the medication every time it made someone's kidney rupture, I'd have to stop <laughs> everyone's medications. It's just, you know, you can't make an omelet, a few eggs, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, if anyone wants the citations, uh, then we'll we'll link to the Memorial Sloan Kettering, and they have these case reports in there. I I thought that was just hilarious. Uh, not not that this happened to patients, but I was just like, oh yeah, let's look up the side effects. It's going to be like heartburn or something like that. And I'm like, <laughs> right. kidney rupture. I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah, so, well, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um. So so horse chestnut seed extract. That's maybe something. But Paul, what if? What if we actually thought she had actual, um, maybe she had a prior pelvic surgery or, you know, inguinal lymph node dissection or pelvic radiation? Let's say pelvic radiation, Paul. She had bilateral lymphedema of her lower extremities. What might the therapy look like there? Yeah, lymphedema is tough. Um, it, it's, it's, it's frustrating for patients. I think it's sometimes frustrating for, for caregivers and providers, too. And it, I, I think the takeaway I would ask our listeners for lymphedema is like this is not a one-person show. Like there should be a team managing the patient's lymphedema. And there there are multidisciplinary lymphedema clinics available. I mean, obviously, the availability is going to vary, but sort of associated with larger medical centers, at, at least they probably exist, where 
Um, they will go for physical therapy and sort of manual assistance with the lymphatic drainage and then also you know, vascular doctors to make sure everything is optimized the way they can and help uh, prevent recurrence of infection, which is which unfortunately is a common problem for patients living with lymphedema. Um, so I, I just I, above and beyond sort of checking in very often, I, I think probably the best thing service we can provide our patients with lymphedema is to get them to one of these specialized centers if available, because it is just such a um, it's called complex really decongestive village. physiotherapy, Paul. Complex yeah. decongestive physiotherapy. So it is, you know, it's not just a clever name. It is, it, it requires a lot. And really like the, the principle is they're trying to get the limb size down enough and then they will put the patient in compression. This does work. Unfortunately, I believe the patient just has to keep doing it. And in some cases, they'll even hook patients up with like intermittent pneumatic compression devices that they can use at home, which... I actually have one older gentleman that I've seen in the past at Cashlack, and he he got hooked up. He went to the lymphedema clinic. He had really horrible, very long-standing lymphedema, and the goal was just to get him like to be able to. He was having trouble just getting up and getting out of the chairs because the the limbs were so heavy, and yeah. um, they were just they were working and able to get him one of these devices. And but it's it's still tough. But he was pleased with the results, and it's he's meeting with a physiotherapist more so than a physician at most of these visits who's doing yep. who's doing the work. Um, and your job is like doing the, and obviously I'll get some of this, but doing the good exam, checking between the toes, making sure that you're actually yeah. treating aggressively for tinea pedis and just preventing right. any super infection. But, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a great service if you can, if you can connect your patient to it. Yeah. So essentially meticulous skin care for, for any of these patients with chronic edema, because as, as we said, uh, they are going to get, they are going to be prone to infections. So Paul, with misphedema, let's say that you know we've we've stopped her medications. I believe I believe you wrote in the case that so she hates us now, but uh, <laughs> her edema does get better, and we gave her some of these basic things to do. And it turns out she just had chronic venous insufficiency. She stopped the meds. Her legs are no longer swollen. She decides she still wants you as her doctor, Paul. But uh, Beth, will you read us? Let's let's do another case, which is going to be a quicker case, and uh, we'll we'll talk about um, a different a different type of edema. Well, after we helped uh, Miss Lynn Fedema, she she changed her mind. She doesn't hate us anymore so much so that she told her brother that we're really great, and she wanted to come down to he want he wanted to come down to the clinic, and he's seeing you in your office. He's sixty four years old. He has diabetes, um, also with neuropathy. He has hypertension. Um, he's on lisinopril for that, thankfully. He has obesity, um, and he also has tobacco use disorder. And he's presenting with left calf swelling that's been ongoing for two days, and he's feeling a pulling sensation that he hasn't ever felt anything like before. So, uh-oh. How is this case different? All right. How is this case different? <laughs> The case is different because now I, I think we're in the land of this is acute unilateral lower extremity edema, and this is a completely different animal than what we've been talking about before. So, I, you know, I, chronic stuff just overall is less acutely scary. Acute edema, the thing that you can't miss is DVT. Like, I think that's probably the most dreaded diagnosis. And while, you know, I, and unfortunately, other things that you might worry about, things like um, cellulitis of the lower extremity, even uh, to some extent, like a ruptured popliteal cyst, all those things can happen acutely. But clinically, I think it's really hard to differentiate those things. And so I really think you're stuck mostly worrying about DVT and sort of working that up. And then once that comes back, negative, fingers crossed, hopefully, then you can sort of work up the other stuff. But for this patient, you have someone who has diabetes, 
uh, which means they're at risk for lower extremity infections. So again, you sort of do your exam between the toes and we'll get to the examination and workup. But he also has his tobacco use, which raises the possibility of occult malignancy. It also just increases yours for DVT overall. So I think you have lots of or a few things that could be happening here with Cal. But I think the thing that you can't miss, the thing that you have to worry about most is is DVT in this patient. I agree. And I was trying to, for a patient like this, Paul, what I struggle with is DVT versus cellulitis. I think probably yeah. probably a lot of people do. But Absolutely. With, with cellulitis, I mean, it can be painful, red, swollen, same as the DVT. You know, I was trying to read about this and no one really had great suggestions. And like you said, it's, it's pretty much impossible to differentiate just on the exam alone. I mean, sometimes with cellulitis, there can be like skip areas where it's, you know, there's like little, a bit of a pattern where it's not quite clear where the cellulitis starts and ends, but that doesn't help you too much. I mean, if someone has a superficial venous thrombophlebitis, you know, sometimes it's, it's kind of obvious they had an IV in that site recently, or you can palpate something very superficial, you know, that's, that's different. But a lot of the times, you know, I'm worried, is this DVT or cellulitis? Those are my two because either one, I'm going to have to treat them with, I'm going to have to prescribe a medicine at that visit. The other possible thing that I've seen, and it's less common, but you should think about it, is a ruptured Baker cyst where they had a Baker cyst that ruptured and it kind of spills all this fluid into the leg and the leg becomes acutely like red, warm, and painful. If they have a history of osteoarthritis and you're lucky enough to have like prior imaging or just knowledge that they had that cyst there, then that's a possible thing, but you're still going to get the ultrasound imaging in that case. So those are kind of the three, you know, big things, the superficial venous thrombophlebitis that you can try to differentiate, the cellulitis and uh, the ruptured Baker's cyst, but you're probably going to have to get some imaging. You know, I know that we're both um, point of care ultrasound enthusiasts. I can tell you that my vascular exam is one of my weaker exams personally, but even the people who are really good at it tell me that they would not rule out a diagnosis based on a negative point of care ultrasound examination. If you if you're thinking about it, you almost have to get the formal studies to make sure. Yeah. You could you could get a D dimer um and if it's if it's negative, you know, and and your suspicion's low enough, then maybe that would change. The D dimer I don't feel would help me cellulitis versus cuz any infection you can get an elevated D dimer, so in my practice, I'm mostly, maybe I'll get a D-dimer if I think there's going to be a delay in the ultrasound and I want to figure out if I'm going to like empirically treat somebody. But most of the time I, I don't empirically treat for just simple DVT and um, I'm getting an ultrasound as quickly as I can, uh, like a formal ultrasound as quickly as I can. Yeah. So for him, we'll, we'll image him. I, I think we probably should mention, you mentioned sort of the three most common causes of unilateral lower extremity edema. I think we can talk about some other ones too. Especially, I think you, you named the big players for acute, acute. unilateral edema. Um, if this were chronic, I think that changes the differential yeah. a little bit. And I think we touched on that at the beginning. I, again, things that cause decreased muscle tone, like things like stroke or MS or L5 radiculopathy can also cause, anything that causes flaccidity um, can cause chronic lower extremity edema. Acutely, you'd hate to miss compartment syndrome. That would be embarrassing, but hopefully you, you've taken a history and would figure that part out. And then there's May-Thurner syndrome, which I feel obligated to mention just because every cardiologist loves it, and I still don't entirely know why. Are you familiar <laughs> with this, Matt? <laughs> I'm from, I mean, it's it's compression uh, of the veins up in the pelvis. And I, I know that I think classically, it's like one of the arteries is compressing the iliac vein, but I think you can also get like in pregnancy, if there's a gravid uterus, it can sort of mimic that or other malignancies or other lesions in the in the pelvis can can mimic that. So 
I don't remember which side it is. It is. is it's, it it's classically the, the the left vein is compressed by the right iliac artery. Um, and it's by the way, th- this is really common. Like it doesn't necessarily lead to pathology. It's 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 often found. You can see it in autopsies all the time, and it doesn't necessarily mean this person's having recurrent left lower extremity DVTs. But that can be a manifestation of it. So if you have um, a, a younger female patient in her second or third decade of life who has chronic left lower extremity edema or is having recurrent DVTs on the left-hand side, like that should prompt you to at least to think about, about Mayther-Nurr syndrome. So it's it's interesting. It's actually fairly common, but what's common is the fact that it exists, not the pathology that you associate with it. That pathology actually doesn't happen all that often. Yeah. Um, it's but, usually but not if, to the extent that you're seeing this stuff. If you do find it, I mean, when we talked to Dr. Strife about this, he said uh, on our, uh, like the, we talked to him on a VTE episode, he talked about actually they they can sometimes stent this, you know, and he and that's yeah. why if you do find the DVT, you want to make sure you see the top of the clot, and if you don't, you should think about getting abdominal pelvic imaging to look at the veins in there to see how high up the clot goes, because in those cases, patients might be candidate for intervention, and they're at higher risk for you know the phlegmasia complications, things like that. Yeah, and I made the joke, but the reason they love it is because they can actually do something about it. Which that's is probably right. also okay. Part there of it. you go. Yeah. There you go. So that that is another that so that's another one of the acute causes, and then the the other chronic causes, Paul. Of so the acute causes cellulitis, DVT, and then the chronic causes lymphedema, lipedema should be put in there too. Great. And then yep. this thing, complex regional pain syndrome, which I don't quite understand that well. I believe that can be unilateral as well. Um, yes. Yeah. So that would be another thing um, if you're if you're working the algorithm there. And then, you know, sometimes I find that if people have had a surgery on one side versus the other, they might have venous insufficiency on that side, not necessarily lymphedema. Great point. Yeah, especially if the, the, the patients who've had older cabbages where they actually did vein harvesting from um, mm. the calf, I, I feel like you can see venous insufficiency there as a result too. That's a great point. Right. So I, I usually just ask, like, if you had surgeries on this leg, has this ever been ultrasounded before? Um, and, and if they're, they're like, sometimes if it's an older person, they'll, they'll be like, oh yeah, you know, th- this has been swollen like this for decades and I, I've had ultrasounds before or their caregiver who's there with them. I'll tell you that. And then I don't necessarily go working it up, yep. Same. but this is, uh, I mean, this is a little bit of a, I think easier algorithm in some sense than the chronic bilateral venous insufficiency, which really requires a much bigger history and, potential workup for the patient like calphedema he with a acute unilateral it's a it's a much quicker workup um but a little bit more scary at least in the first 24 hours until you yeah, until absolutely. you conclude things so anything else that you wanted to talk about paul i mean it's been a whirlwind tour and you know i'm not sure i don't know what we missed i feel like it's been it's been fairly complete but there, we could we could always talk forever yeah for sure i mean i, I think we did we didn't talk about uh, we we talked a little bit before we started about this this diagnosis of idiopathic edema, which I don't know what to do about and seems to be – I found one paper on it from 1999 in the American Journal of Kidney Diseases and even the authors were like, I'm not sure if this is actually a thing or not. So like I, I – you'll see – you might read about that, but I'm not sure that would not be the first thing to think about in terms of a differential for <laughs> – yeah. Or by the large edema. Yeah. I, um, I think one thing that, uh, you know, that, that you just reminded me of is, uh, which is maybe pertinent to the idiopathic edema, is that patients who have had edema, uh, they've often tried diuretics. Um, either they got them from a prior physician or they got them from a friend or family member. And it, some of the articles did mention that, like, if patients are taking diuretics inappropriately, you know, because they think it's going to help them 
they can become chronically volume depleted and their renin-aldosterone-angio system can be ramped up and they can actually be retaining salt and water kind of paradoxically despite taking the diuretics. So I generally try to tell patients like, listen, like diuretics, they're great if you have high blood pressure and we need it for that. Or if you have cardiopulmonary disease that like requires diuretic therapy to kind of help your heart and lungs work better. But in this case, chronic venous insufficiency, I think it could be dangerous. It could hurt your kidneys yes, and you know, could cause you to become dehydrated, which could actually maybe even worsen your edema. So I really don't think this... And, and sometimes if a patient's really insistent and I'm not sure, maybe they had that grade one diastolic dysfunction, Paul, maybe I'll give them like a, a brief trial of it and I'll check their electrolytes and then we decide if it actually helped them or if there were any harmful effects and we stop it. But you know, I don't like set it and forget it and give all my patients with chronic edema diuretic therapy. I feel like that's a, you know, you sh- we should not be doing that. And as I mentioned, Paul, to me, this is kind of like the azithromycin of of lower extremity edema. You know, it's, it it's kind of akin yep. to that because I I find myself mostly talking about why they don't need diuretics when people come into my office with edema. Not necessarily. That's that's like the hardest part of it for me, actually. <laughs> Sometimes. Yes, I, it's right. I I think that's the trap we fall into a lot of the times where we're sort of doing stuff for the illusion of actually doing stuff and it may not actually help. And I feel like that's there's a lot of things in medicine that we're prone to. And I think this is one of those cases where you, you just kind of want to you're desperately want to help the patient. It comes from a good place, but this is probably not the right way to do it a lot of the time. Yeah. So so with that, um, I think we should probably get to the outro, Paul. Sure. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Great. Consistent is your byword. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest. Do you get it? Digest. Recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we really want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. We actually read them, and, uh, you know, maybe once in a while we'll read them on air because uh, sometimes they're funny. Um, And sometimes they hurt our feelings. (laughs) Yeah, that too. So you can contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. A special thanks to our writer and producer and guest expert for this episode, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, and to our whole team, Beth Garbs. Garbatelli is our executive producer and runs our Twitter. Nora Toronto is the editor for The Digest. Maddie Mad Dog Morgan is on Instagram. Tima Karganov does the website. And finally, Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Beth Garbs Garbatelli. And we should also make sure we thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. We should also thank the outstanding Claire Morgan of Not Only for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.